Coming up on Studios America, Michael Schellenberger joins us to talk about the collapse of San Francisco. All your favorite junk foods might get more expensive, and that physically enrages me. Leave my snacks alone. And the Biden administration's insane vaccine mandate for private companies has a post-holidays deadline. Who wouldn't want a nice, hefty OSHA fine for Christmas? So let's do Biden's mandate overreach. Stu does America. Welcome to Vaccine Mandate Day, everybody. Yes, a long time ago, seems like hundreds of years ago, uh, the Biden administration announced a plan to require vaccinations for basically everybody in the workforce, as long as you live uh, worked at a company with more than 100 people. Shockingly, they waited till after the election to unveil the details. It's a stunner, isn't it? Two big parts uh, were outlined today. Number one was the one we kind of heard a lot about, a private business mandate. Now, this would cover 84 million U.S. workers or two thirds of the workforce. This would be implied and managed through OSHA. Now, OSHA, you know, look, OSHA was designed as a place to say, hey, you know, you have those people working in factories. You can't have their fingers being cut off all the time. You can't have like you can't pump poison in onto the factory floor. You need to be a little careful with employees lives. It was supposed to be something that protected employees from basic workplace hazards, not respiratory viruses. It's never been applied to anything like this in this way. It would require employees to be fully vaccinated by January 4th. Now, remember, of course, after you get your shots, you got to wait a few weeks. I mean, really, if you're Going with uh, any of the, if you're going with the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer or uh, the uh, Moderna, you know, you got two shots and you have two weeks after your last shot. So really, I mean, if you're going to play around with this stuff, you have to do it almost in the next couple of weeks. You'd have to start to be done by January 4th. Now, what if you're not vaccinated? You say you're not going to do it. Well, they do give you an out and here's how it works. A verified negative test you would have to uh, come up with every single week and give it to your employer. It's a little strange there on the details of how that will work. We'll get into that here in a little bit uh, in a little bit as well. But you also would have to wear a mask at all times at work as of December 5th. That's about a month away from right now. Now, employers do not have to pay for the tests. You do. If you're in a union shop, there may be a little bit of an asterisk there. They may be paying for your tests. But in theory, if this were to go through, you would be paying for your own tests and you'd come in every week and say, hey, Mr. Boss, here's my test. I'm allowed to show up today. If you don't do this, you can be removed from the workplace. Now, what does that mean exactly? Could mean that you're going to get fired, obviously. It could also mean that they'll force you to work from home. And that's been kind of uh, the out for a lot of places who have been talking about this. If you have 100 employees, but 20 of them don't work at the office, will you have a way to avoid the mandate? It looks like, in theory, yes, but we'll see as, as the full text comes out. Employers uh, will provide paid time off to get vaccinated. So if you're an employer, you not only have to now manage the health of each and every one of your employees to remain within the good graces of the country and Joe Biden's feelings, but you're also going to have to now pay for sick leave to recover from any vaccination side effects and for people to get vaccinated in the first place. All of that, all of the money you're putting out, 
all the time, all of the attention away from what your business actually does, all to avoid giant fines that could come from OSHA. Now, if you think about the way this would work mechanically, in theory, an OSHA complaint typically goes through uh, a process where an employee who works for you, let's say if you own the business, an employee who works for you says, there's unsafe stuff going on here. I've complained to management, they won't change it. Now I'm gonna go to OSHA. You file a complaint with OSHA. OSHA in theory comes out, checks it out, investigates, and if you are in violation of this health standard, you have to pay a fine, in this case, up to $13,653 for a single violation. Although that is different than a willful violation. So if you mess up, I don't know, someone's not wearing, you're not enforcing the mask usage for unvaccinated employees. Someone might report you, you might have a $13,000 fine. If you say, you know what, this is unconstitutional. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to require my um, uh, employees to be vaccinated or wear masks. Screw you, Joe Biden. Um, you might say a phrase like, let's go Brandon, for example. Well, that fine goes up. It goes up 10x, 10 times the fine. One violation up to $136,532 for employers who willfully violate the standards. Obviously, for any small to medium business, you're talking about the type of fine that puts them out of business. And it's not necessarily all going to come from employees reporting to OSHA uh, and then an investigation going on. OSHA plans to carry out inspections of random workplaces. At least that's the way it's being reported at this point. This is a massive overreach of and really a first in our country. Yes, we have vaccine mandates. Those vaccine mandates are always done at the state level, not the national level. Vaccine mandates for the military, very common. And I don't think, legally speaking, they're going to be able to overturn those. Federal workers, probably the same story. Going to be hard to overturn those in the courts. We'll see what happens there. But the private sector, the federal government jumping into the private sector, this is remarkable. Now, there's a second part of the announcement I want to hit here quickly as well. It goes, this one is not OSHA. It's through the Medicare and Medicaid Services uh, Department. They're going to, uh, to put on new restrictions on 17 million workers at 76,000 healthcare facilities across the country. Now, this is a vaccine mandate and a, and a more pure vaccine mandate. The one with the private sector does give you the out for testing and masking. Not the case with this other one. Vaccine mandate, no out for testing. Uh, it needs to be done as well by January 4th. They will offer, they say, religious and medical exemptions. Now, the way vaccine mandates work with religious and medical exemptions is a little sticky. They don't want to give you these exemptions. I think if you've been following the news, you probably know they don't want to give you exemptions uh, to the vaccine for religious or medical uh, reasons. The medical reasons obviously have to go through um, uh, medical um, doctors and it has, they're gonna try to make you document this for them. They're not gonna just say, oh, well, I'm worried about what effects it might have on me. They're gonna make you go through a process here. Same thing goes with the religious exemptions. Now, religious exemptions trump all of this stuff, okay? Religious exemptions, this is something that's in our Constitution. We went, we've gone to the Supreme Court and said, you know, hardcore narcotics and drugs are okay for uh, people if it's involved in a religious ceremony. We as, are founded on the values of religious freedom. 
And we'll allow almost anything, honestly, uh, when it comes to a religious exemption. At least that's how our country was built. However, when it comes to the vaccine, they're being very, very strict on this. A lot of people are saying, well, you know, a lot of people are faking it. Let's let's be honest about it. They don't want to take the vaccine. And they're saying, look, I don't want to take it for religious reasons. Some people are saying that legitimately. Some people are faking it. In my view, if you're willing to say you want a religious exemption out of this, really, whether it's real, heartfelt or not, we should be we should be giving it to uh, to people. And I just don't buy that you have a right to uh, determine as an employer or a government agency whether someone's religious uh, belief is heartfelt or not. That's between them and their God. And I will say, if you're a religious person and you actually don't have an opposition to vaccines and you say, I I do uh, because God told me not to get it, well, that's going to be an issue with you and God. You don't want to be lying about what you think God believes. If you think God does believe that you should not get this or you have a legitimate um, religious exemption, that's a totally different story. But like, it's not my job as a freaking employer to try to figure out whether your heartfelt religious beliefs are legit or not. How can we possibly be putting employers and or government agencies into this business? This is not their job. This covers hospitals, ambulatory surgery centers, dialysis facilities, home health agencies, and long-term care facilities. This is for workers and contractors uh, that deal with Medicare and Medicaid. Now, if you don't comply, you can be denied funding. Uh, You can have all sorts of other penalties. Your facilities can be terminated for Medicare and Medicaid programs. This is a, this is, these are large scale threats and it's, Honestly, nonsense. We've talked about this over and over again. This is not a we're not we're not dealing with the disease from outbreak and, and, and a 10 percent vaccination rate. And we're like, please, everyone's going to turn into people are going to start melting like, uh, you know, the, the people did in an outbreak. That's not the way that this works. We know that the vast majority of people who get covid thankfully survive it. It has killed a lot of people and it's been a really rough couple of years, but we have a vaccine and we are actually vaccinating a lot of people, not because of mandates, because people have chosen to get them. Um, If you go back to the polio vaccine, six years after the polio vaccine came out, we only had 54% of the country vaccinated. Currently right now, with at least one shot, about 80% of adults, 79.9% as of this morning, are vaccinated. Lots of people are doing this because they want to do it. Stand by your product. If the product works, people will get it. And more and more people have gotten it. If you look back at the polling from the beginning of all of this, when the vaccine came out, only 34% of the population said they wanted to get it right away. 34%. We're now at 80% vaccinated. The people who said they wanted to get it right away have been vaccinated. The people who said they wanted to wait a little while and see what happened, they've all been vaccinated. A good majority of the people who said, I am not going to get it unless I'm forced to, have already been vaccinated before this mandate started. You're only at this point targeting people who have real feelings about not getting the vaccine. And, you know, the way to win over someone to the vaccine, if you think it's good and they don't, is to try to persuade them. And if they say no, then you know what you do? You respect their worldview. You say, you know what, I would really like you. I think you should get vaccinated. I think the the evidence is there. But if you don't see it that way, I'm going to roll over you. 
I'm going to try to ruin your life. I'm going to take your livelihood to get you vaccinated. What does this accomplish? And we take people, this last part of the mandate, takes people out of the hospitals that could be helping actual COVID-19 patients and taking them out of the hospital so they can't help any longer. This is completely and utterly bonkers. Now, uh, uh, the, the summary of what critics believe uh, from the media uh, is, I think, interesting to look at. This is from Yahoo. Critics of the mandate say employers shouldn't be responsible for policing their workforce. Yeah, that's not their job to police the, the individual health care decisions of the people working for them. We should be out of our employees' businesses, not getting deeper into it. They also question how the Biden administration can justify an emergency rule that fails to provide equal protections for workers and firms with fewer than 100 employees. And this is an interesting part of this. Legal challenges to rules like this often um, are successful based on what we kind of would call technicalities. Like, for example, here's some ways that they're going to go after this legally. Why not under 100 employees? You want an emergency rule here. If it's an emergency, do people with companies with only 95 employees, do they not have that emergency as well? Of course they do. It's an equal situation. How can you justify only applying it to people uh, and companies with only 100 people or uh, employees or less? If this is an emergency, why are you waiting until January? I thought this was an emergency. Um, you can't just come up with arbitrary dates and arbitrary numbers. When you want a justification like this, a mandate, you have to come up with real justifications for every part of this. And they have no way to justify these specifics. How about, uh, the, the can, for example, can Congress even delegate this much power to some agency of unelected workers? What about the separation of powers? What about the limit? This is a, this is one I, it keeps running through my head all the time. And I, I've said it to you a hundred times on the show. I'm going to keep ranting on it until they take it off the air. What is the limiting principle of this? What is the limiting principle of what OSHA can do? Is there any theoretical limit as to what OSHA can do if they can do this? Now, we know even when we're uncomfortable with vaccine mandates, uh, they're always applied by the states. There is a legal uh, back and forth that's gone on for the, the entirety of this country. And when states apply vaccine mandates, we can disagree with them, but largely they've held up in courts. States are empowered to police health and safety, not the federal government. How do you enforce this? Could red states refuse to enforce it? I think there's a real argument for that. Now, could this work? Could this go through? I just gave you an entire list of, of, of problems with it. We had, uh, I, we had Jeremy Boring. If you didn't see this today, I was on the news and why it matters. Jeremy Boring of the Daily Wire. They're in the middle of suing the government over this already. There's going to be tons of lawsuits, tons of arguments. It's going to be really hard for them to get this through. I, my instinct is they will not get it through. Eventually, one of these lawsuits will stop it. But insanely, it's not impossible that this could go through. And this is something that I've harped on for a while uh, over the past year. OSHA, there's a reason they used OSHA to do this. OSHA is almost like a superpower agency. They have been given the broadest power you can imagine. And I want to go back through this. This is from uh, David French. 
uh, and he outlines the way OSHA is viewed and how it was built. He says, we're, we're dealing with OSHA, a regulatory entity created by an act of Congress that Congress has granted really super duper broad regulatory authority over private businesses. How broad? I'll let Cass Sunstein explain. You remember Cass Sunstein from the Obama administration. He says this, imagine that Congress creates a federal agency to deal with a large problem, one that involves a significant part of the national economy. This is a theoretical here. Suppose that Congress instructs the agency do what you believe is best, act responsibly and appropriately, adopt the legal standard you prefer, all things considered. Suppose finally that these instructions lack clear contextual reference, such as previous enactments or judicial understandings on which the agency might build. Remarkably, however, the core provision of one of the nation's most important regulatory statutes, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, is not easy to distinguish from this hypothesized statute. That provision defines, quote, an occupational safety and health standard as one that is, quote, reasonably necessary or appropriate to provide safe or healthful employment or places of employment. When the Secretary of Labor uh, issues regulations governing tractors, ladders, or electrical equipment, the only question to be asked is whether one or another standard is reasonably necessary or appropriate. That is crazy town. That's just saying, like, I don't know, government, um, is that, I don't know, reasonably appropriate? That's not the type of thing that a government, it's not the type of power government can understand. And like, you might look at that and say, well, no, of course a vaccine mandated for COVID is not reasonably appropriate. It's not reasonably necessary. But the problem here is you're not running things. You might want that, but that's not the power we've given to these agencies. And this is the biggest problem of all of this. It might not be necessary. It might not be appropriate. Okay, that might be your opinion. But the problem is, if your limiting principle of a rule like this is that I think this particular usage of the power is dumb, that only matters when you're in power. We've had a long conversation on the right between people who are rights-based conservatives and see it more through that prism as opposed to common good conservatives and see it through that prism. And as we talked about many times, I have friends on both sides of that debate and both sides have very interesting points at times. But the problem I believe with a lot of the common good argument, especially when it comes to this, is how do you justify not having a vaccine mandate? If what we're supposed to use government power for the common good, how can you justify it? You can certainly argue in this case that it doesn't come to the standard. We shouldn't do it. But if that's your only argument, then it only matters who's in power. If your argument is, I don't like this one, well, that's great when you're in power, but when the other side gets in power, they can say, well, I do like it. And so I'm going to implement it. And that's what we're seeing here. We have to be able to take, this needs to be a priority for Republicans going forward. This particular OSHA standard needs to be limited. It is completely out of control. And just like all of this going on, it might actually work here. It might actually work because of the crazy amount of power we've given to the government to micromanage every single private business in America based on a whim. It needs to stop 
and we need Republican candidates to stand up and make this a priority. Don't just head nod to it. Don't just whine about it. And honestly, don't just sue about it. We do need to sue. We do need to take legal action on this. But we also need to refine this standard so that this sort of crap can't happen in the future. They will use this for global warming. They'll use it for guns. They'll say racism is a health issue and they'll use it for that. They'll use it for everything. And it really needs to stop. Ah, it's starting to feel like fall here in Texas. It might be cold where you are already. We're just getting to that point now where it's like 55 to 60 and sunny here in Texas. And that's too cold. Too cold. But as we get into fall, Bespoke Post is here with a new seasonal lineup of must-have box of awesome collections. Bespoke Post partners with small businesses, emerging brands you may not have even heard of before. Some of them you have, some of them you might not have. But they will get you the most unique, cool stuff every single month sent to you, no matter what you're into. Box of Awesome has you covered from autumn craft beers to cozy threads and camping gear essentials. Box of Awesome has collections for every part of your life. This is a fantastic gift as well. You're getting towards, towards Christmas. This is a great one to get uh, someone you care about. Get started. Get the qui- what you do is you take the quiz at boxofawesome.com. You're going to get awesome stuff in a box sent to you. Your answers will help them pick the right box of awesome for you. They release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. It's free to sign up and you can skip a month anytime. Each box only costs 45 bucks, but has over $70 and usually way over $70 worth of gear inside. Uh, get 20% off your monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com. Enter the code STU at checkout. It's boxofawesome.com. Code is STU for 20% off your first box. Always great to have Michael Schellenberger on the program. He's the founder and president of Environmental Progress and the author of the excellent new book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. It's available now wherever you get your book, so be sure to grab a copy. Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. Great to be back, Stu. I did notice when I looked at the cover of your book, if you cover the top half of it, it just says Michael Schellenberger, sicko. (laughs) (laughs) I want you to notice that. That's appropriate. Someone at your publisher is screwing with you, I think, Mike. Well, it's what happened to me after writing it. It was uh, intense research, as you might imagine. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting because I was thinking about how to describe this book. Um, and th- I mean this in actually as a complete compliment on the book, which is great, is that it's disgusting. I mean, it is completely revolting that this stuff is going on in America and we're handling it the way that you outlined, particularly in the first half of the book. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, I think what's happening is really terrible. I mean, I wrote the book because I was upset about what I view as the loss of our humanity. Not just the people that live on the street, but the people that, you know, we pay our taxes and we, you know, we pay more money in our taxes than anybody else really in the country in California. And we have this horrible situation on our streets. I think the situation's immoral. There's no way to sugarcoat it. I just it's we're, we're doing things to people that are not done in any other civilized country and it's completely wrong. And yeah, it honestly did affect me working on this book. I was I was really uh, I'm a sensitive person in general. And, and the stories that I describe here, you know, nothing nothing like this should really be happening in America. Okay. You do a great job you did in your last book as well of, of 
talking to people. It's not just you coming out and giving your opinions, which of course you, you give as well, and, and tons and tons of data and everything. But you, you, you speak to a lot of people about what happened here. And you kind of come from a basis of, uh, you were in this movement, right? Like you were working to try to do something about homelessness going back a long time. Can you kind of tell people how you came about uh, going through this sort of journey on this issue? Sure. Uh, I moved to California in the in 1993 after I graduated college. I wanted to work on progressive causes. That's why I came here. I did a lot of work in the mid to late 90s on criminal justice reform. I was very concerned about mass incarceration, particularly the racially disproportionate impacts of it. I still am a big believer in rehabilitation. If we can rehabilitate people rather than lock them up for decades, that's obviously the best way to go. But when I got out of that work in the early 2000s, my understanding was that we were going to advocate rehabilitation as the alternative to prison, not as an option, that there would still be consequences for people breaking the law. You know, you fast forward 20 years later, in the year 2000, we had 17,000 people die from drug deaths, overdoses and poisonings. Last year, we had 96,000 people die. That's more people than die from um, any other form of accidental death four times more people than die from homicides. It's three times more people than die from car accidents. It's, um, you know, it's, it's human suffering, but it's also destroying the fabric of our cities. The cities are not safe. These are open drug scenes. It's fundamentally a drug issue, an untreated mental illness issue as well, which is often behind addiction. So, you know, it's similar to Apocalypse Never in that my mind changed on a bunch of these topics, though, Maybe not quite as much on the environment because it was never I, I never thought we were signing up for what's going on right now. Yeah, it was really heartbreaking at times. You talk to people who live on the streets, who have gone through all of these situations and have come out, some of them on the other side. Um, but it is it's, it's just a it, there's this sort of theory that I think people believe, which is hey, if we would just get rents under control, then people wouldn't be homeless. Or, hey, if we can just get poverty under control, or if we can bring down the cost of living, if we can you know, even give people homes, it seems obvious that if they have a home, they're not homeless, but that doesn't solve the problem, does it? No, I mean, drug addiction, as most of us have some family or friendship connection to, to addicts, Drug addiction is a mental disorder, a mental disease. Um, it takes over the brain and hijacks our motivations. So, I mean, the typical picture of the people on the street is that they have lost their jobs because they are full-time drug addicts. Often that means needing to use heroin, fentanyl, or meth, you know, every four hours. They have often burned through all of their close family and friend relationships, probably overstayed their welcome at somebody's house. And they're living on the street because they want to squirrel away all their money for their drug habit. You know, it's um, it's 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 not something that we can just blame people for because the addiction is controls people. And so, yeah, if you just give people their own house or their own apartment, the risk is that they overdose and die. That's been happening quite a bit. And it doesn't deal with the fundamental addiction. So what I argue that we need to do is what we've done in other Europe, what they've done in Europe and what they've done in Asia, developed countries in Asia, which is, you know, you have to shelter everybody, but you have to treat addiction and mental illness. And then if you're going to have housing, the housing should be used as a reward for sobriety, for abstinence, for, you know, following your personal plan, whether that's going to work or taking your psychiatric meds, that this thing of just giving money or 
needles or housing to addicts without any any um, corresponding uh, without requiring anything in return, without any reciprocity, it's quite deadly. Actually, it's contributed to all these deaths that we're seeing. Yeah, you, I wrote this quote down. I was reading the book, and it hit me. It was one, in one of your interviews. I can't remember who it was because I just wrote down the note of what the quote was, but he said, I don't want to see people die with their rights on. And I I thought that that was just a really interesting way of looking at it because there's this justification that people have the right to be out on the sidewalk sleeping. People have the right to be doing all these drugs and going to the bathroom on the sidewalk or whatever these crimes are. And I I think they are crimes mostly. Um, But this idea that you're protecting someone's rights by letting them sleep on the sidewalk uh, in, in, in utter health distress, mental distress, um, drug addiction. I mean, that can't be the right solution, can it? No, I mean, and I describe uh, part of the reason I wanted to write San Francisco was I wanted to get at the ways in which progressives have manipulated language as a way to manipulate our thinking and also manipulate our feelings. Hmm. So the word homelessness is really a propaganda word. I mean, it combines people that have very different problems. We do a pretty good job of taking care of the mom who's escaping an abusive husband with her two kids if she doesn't have an underlying addiction or mental illness. We have social services programs for that person. We are not doing a good job for people with untreated mental illness or drug addiction. And so to combine them as homeless, to call them homeless fundamentally suggests this is a problem of of lack of housing and poverty, which it's not. It's a complete mystification of it. Similarly, the idea that you're protecting somebody's rights by letting them destroy themselves in public is not okay. You know, there are there are, of course, there is some complexity here and there's some balance between freedoms for individuals. So you know, it's terrible, but we I don't think we should do anything to stop people from killing themselves in the privacy of their own homes. You know, I, I think it's terrible to smoke fentanyl in the privacy of your own home, but I don't think we should I don't think taxpayers should be, you know, hunting down addicts. But when you're doing that in public and you're breaking the law or you're camping in public or defecating in public or using drugs in public, you are breaking the law. And that's an opportunity to be arrested and to receive the help you need. Hopefully it's not prison, but a lot of addicts require the threat of jail or prison in order to go to rehab. Um, you describe uh, a bunch of situations in the book of, of real world uh, at times that this has played out. One in particular, which is really vivid, was a, a woman uh, getting attacked out in the street and trying their, her efforts to try to get through this door to avoid being killed by just some random person who's going through seemingly a psychotic uh, episode. Yeah. Can, can you tell it? Can you kind of walk us through that story and what happened afterward? Sure. Uh, this is just a, you know, a young urban professional woman in her late 20s just trying to go home after a night out on the town. A man who we we don't know if he was suffering an underlying mental illness or just a meth induced psychosis, but clearly psychotic. One of the things you hear is that they're communicating with aliens or the CIA or both. It's a very interesting pattern. Huh. But yeah, she she struggled to escape this guy who was basically assaulting her outside of her apartment. A terrifying episode. You know, the police arrest the guy. He goes right in front of the judge and the judge lets him go. That's pretty typical in San Francisco. He needed to he needed to stay in jail and receive some kind of sentencing that would have protected the public and protect him. After they made the video, because they had security surveillance video um, that they were shooting of the incident, once they made the video available, she sent out a tweet and tweeted at the governor and the mayor. 
they took action because it became a sensational media story. Mm. But this, these kinds of attacks, including on young women, are very common. I mean, most of my young female friends that live in San Francisco or Oakland report being harassed at a minimum or even attacked. Everybody gets screamed at. I mean, it's it's out of control. There's a lot of psychosis. It's And we don't know if the psychosis is coming from underlying schizophrenia or meth. But that's what we're dealing with here. And, and really, you just have the ACLU and the radical left, which is preventing the kind of treatment for these people that they need. It's really a tragedy for everybody involved. And how does this fit in with the left's philosophy, Michael? I mean, you have a situation where uh, an offhanded comment or, um, you know, some workplace, a minor workplace incident turns into a major scandal through in big companies all over the place. And then women who are walking through the street getting grabbed, groped, harassed, beaten, and nothing comes of this. They will brag to the cameras that we know the police is not going to do anything when they show up. So go ahead. I'll do whatever I want. Right. How does this fit in with the with the outrage of Me Too? Yeah, great question. And that was one of my questions, too, is sort of why all why do we spend so much time um, focused entirely on African-Americans killed by police when 30 times more African-Americans are killed every year by civilians? Why do we not care about the African-Americans and others who are dying of drug overdoses? Mm. Um, why do we not worry about women and others being harassed or assaulted or attacked by mentally ill, homeless or drug addicted people? And the answer is, is that progressives consistent with the radical left tradition are very narrowly focused on victims of the so-called system. So, you know, they're concerned with the victims of the police. They're concerned with victims of the prisons. They're concerned with victims of the government or big corporations. And, you know, it's it's just as dumb as that. I mean, I wish I could sort of suggest that there was more sophistication there, but there's not. <laughs> you know, the drug dealing in San Francisco is run by Hondurans. They're part of a massive international multi-billion dollar cartel, which is a gigantic corporation. It kills people, but it's outside the system. And so the victims of the cartel are not considered really worthy of progressive concern. One of the arguments we hear for a solution to this type of stuff is, and we hear from not only the left, but also sort of the libertarians. And I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for most of the libertarian argument. Um, but that this idea that, you know, if we did something like Portugal did, where they, they legalized all drugs and uh, that would solve our problem here as well. Is that even an accurate way of stating what they actually did there? That's what you've been, we've been hearing that for decades. It's quite incredible how long that misinformation has gone on. It never made any sense. You know, when someone says, yeah, we, you know, we have a bad drug addiction overdose problem, so we should just legalize drugs. Well, how would that reduce that problem? I mean, there was never even a mechanism that makes sense. So the shorter answer is absolutely not. That is not what Portugal did. That's not what Netherlands did. I um, was so frustrated by this misinformation that shortly before the book came out, I did a Zoom interview with the head of the Portuguese drug program over Zoom. I put it on Twitter and I said to him, what happens if someone's shooting drugs in Portugal? What happens? And he says the police would arrest them and take them to the police station. <laughs> you know, and and I still have people on Twitter tell it to me. It's a, I like the video, but yeah, I mean, they don't. They don't want to put addicts in prison. Nobody wants to do that. It's clearly a disease. They're sick. They need help. 
But it's a strange disease in that sometimes it requires for people to get clean to be arrested and have the threat of prison hanging over them. That's just the way that addiction works. It's been that way for 120 years. We've known this for decades. We have a reality TV show called Intervention, which is all about this. So it's just a kind of religious dogma that prevents us from helping people in the ways they need to be helped. I want to go into the solution here for a bit. I, I've had some, uh, in, with family members, had some recent experience with mental health uh, situations and up close and personal with the mental health uh, system in action. And man, I mean, it is, it's impossible to navigate. You, you know, people get picked up, they get brought to these facilities. They're out two days later with no resolution to it, left to do what they were doing before. It is, it's a total, it seems, at least from my view, a totally unworkable system that is largely creates hopelessness, I think, for the people that care, for the people involved in mental health issues. Is there some way to reform the system to make it uh, make it so it's not just about, you know, these crimes on the streets, but these people really need help. And it doesn't seem that our system is providing any any assistance in any of these areas. Yeah, I mean, you have it. It's a system that you know, I used to you can call the system broken, but that implied that there was a whole system at one point that was functioning and there never was. So, I mean, this is the part that's more of a challenge for conservatives. You know, we need to have universal psychiatric care. Um, we need to have fewer barriers for people to get the psychiatric care they need. You know, a lot of the attention on the opioid crisis has gone to the role of the big pharmaceutical companies unscrupulous doctors, corrupt regulators, they all deserve blame. But another part of it was just that we had a lot of people in the United States that were not being properly treated for mental illness, you know, including just depression, you know, maybe people that would have that would have benefited from an antidepressant. Instead, they found relief through opioids, which they were able to obtain more easily than an antidepressant, which is insane. Mm. Um, but that just needs to be fixed. And I when I'm proposing so you just have to have universal psychiatry and it has to be a lot easier to use. You know, the good news is that with telepsychiatry, you can reduce the cost of the most expensive part of psychiatric care, which is uh, the consultation with a psychiatrist. There's a lot that on things like addiction, they don't require for most people. It doesn't require a doctor's oversight for a lot of hours. It, you know, nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, medically assisted treatment. These things can all help a lot. But yeah, I mean, I think we need very significant reform of the system so that it's just much easier to move from, you know, provider to provider to get the care that you need. I think we need mobile vans. We need outreach to adolescents. I mean, I'm working with a coalition of parents who have kids both on the street addicted to drugs, but also with parents whose kids, you know, were depressed during COVID and they thought they were buying a Percocet or an opioid or a, or a, or a Xanax or something on Snapchat. And it turned out to be an adulterated drug with fentanyl in it. And they died just Ugh. like in their bedrooms. And so we have kids that are self-medicating, you know, our standards are way down. We need to have a real serious whole of society effort on this issue. There's a lot more to this, and, and it's in the book. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, I'd love to have you back on again, Michael, to talk about this, because it, it, you really go through the problem at incredible detail. 
And it is just, it's really heartbreaking. Uh, you know, I don't know how else to put it. It really is heartbreaking. Uh, Michael Schellenberger is the founder and president of Amer Environmental Progress. He's author of San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. Grab your copy today. And, you know, it, it's just something that if you want to get informed on this issue at all, you need to know this information. Uh, and we need to come up with some solution for this because it's, it's just killing our cities right now. Michael, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Stu. This inflation thing is really starting to piss me off. Top snack makers are saying they are going to hike prices for retail customers of varieties of Kraft Mac and Cheese, Jell-O, Cool Whip, Toblerone, Sour Patch Kids, and Bagel Bites. This is not America. Screw you, Joe Biden. What are you doing to our country right now? If, if I hear... The price of Twizzlers is going up. I am going to join a militia. Okay? That's what happens. All right? You, you make Kraft Mac and Cheese more expensive. I know where I'm going to be next January 6th. Damn it. <laughs> no bagel bites, no peace. No bagel bites, no peace. Back in a second. So I've been telling you about Chamonix for a while now. Uh, this is the best in skincare products. And if you don't know about Chamonix, you got Christmas coming up. You need to have a great gift. Let me tell you what Samantha from Arcadia, California has to say about her results. She says, I love GenuCell plant stem cell therapy. I have used it all over my face, under my eyes, and it's cleared up the flakiness, even reduced my forehead lines. And someone even asked if I had work done. Nope, just GenuCell by Chamonix. Fine lines, uh, forehead wrinkles, dark spots, bags, puffiness under your eyes, gone right before your eyes. And best of all, it's guaranteed. Uh, you get results in as little as 12 hours or your money back. It's that simple. From now until Thanksgiving, you can see the difference yourself with 50%, or excuse me, 60% off they're doing now on all GenuCell packages. Just go to lovegenucell.com slash stew. Love, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash stew. 60% off the packages now. Order now and express shipping is free as well. It's lovegenucell.com slash stew. So every Thursday, we have a new piece of brand new exclusive content for you on YouTube. We're going to debut it right after this program. So don't miss it Thursday nights uh, right after this program. Um, go to our YouTube page, youtube.com slash stew does America. And you're going to check it out today. Uh, we were just talking about junk food a second ago. You want to talk about uh, an important product because if you are eating breakfast cereal. You need to know what the sexual preference of that breakfast cereal is. So we were able to go out and get, find the gayest cereal ever, ever created. We've got it for you, and we're going to review it on the channel tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern, right after this program. Just check it out. Uh, go to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash America. While you're there, make sure you subscribe. Make sure you click the fancy little bell there so it'll give you the alerts of when we're posting new stuff. We do appreciate it. Check it out and share it. YouTube.com slash America. Back in a second. He knows when you aren't sleeping. He knows when you aren't woke. That's right. Santifa Claus is coming to town with his... <laughs> spiked bat to probably break your windows and light your buildings on fire. He's teaching you CRT, which of course is Christmas re-education training. 
ChristmasReeducationTraining.com is the place to go to get the new stuff. Get it now so you have it for Christmas and everyone will be excited to see you had an ugly sweater party. This is the thing to have. ChristmasReeducationTraining.com.